MSW Media. One year after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, what are Congress and the Justice Department doing to make sure it doesn't happen again? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend, Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I get to my conversation with Patty, I want to thank BetterHelp for supporting On Topic. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash on topic. Start living a better life today. I also want to thank some of our viewers who've supported us so for so long in, throughout the past in this podcast. James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Joe Targonsky, Shada Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. All right, now let's get to the topic at hand because I've got to say, Patty, this has been just frustrating so many of our listeners. Uh, people are understandably just outraged. We had an attack on our country, an insurrection, and it seems like nothing's happening about it. Well, that's what the last five years have felt like. You know, we have had this conversation many times. Uh, ev everything seems like, well, this it, they can't possibly get away with this. That is what the last five years have felt like. Not just things that are illegal, just immoral and questionable behavior in general. You know, when I saw Donald Trump mock a disabled reporter, I thought, well, surely no one's going to tolerate this. But they did. And then we hear the audio about grabbing, just grab a woman by her private party. And I was like, surely this will be. So I, I guess I have a, um, a, a, I try not to be cynical, but there's a reason why I'm a comedian is that I see ridiculous things and I go, does anyone see how crazy this is? And I feel like that's what everyone has been doing for the last five years. And even during, I remember even when the Capitol was being attacked, I was out for a walk with my, it was, a, it happened to be, I think, kind of warm that day. If I'm not mistaken, a year ago in Chicago, it was, it was unseasonably warm. And I could be wrong about this. Maybe I'm combining the last year of being in a pandemic, but my husband was like, well, of course they are. I mean, I think there are people who are like, well, of course they're attacking the Capitol and have bear spray and are tasering police officers. Like that's the point where a lot of people were, is that of course this is happening. And I, I don't know if that's uh, Merrick Garland's approach is like, well, of course that happened. Let's just move on. That's how a lot of us are looking at this uh, is that Merrick Garland does not seem to have the sense of urgency that so many of us want him to have. Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I will say that, that definitely the way that I think it, it feels to folks, I, whenever I'm online and on Twitter, the conversation basically is <clears throat> Merrick Garland doesn't have any urgency. Merrick Garland's not doing anything. And really no one else is doing anything and people are frustrated about it. I, I totally get that. I, I will say that it is absolutely shocking 
to see people attacking the Capitol, trying to overturn not just the results of the election, which is what they say on Capitol News, but really kind of overturning our entire democratic system, constitutional system, uh, our entire way of government, because essentially they wanted to make it so that even if there's been a certified winner of the election, they wanted to overturn that and and have the losing party basically use the remaining power uh, from the last election to hold on to power. Uh, so, look, it's it's shocking. But I have to say that I think the the challenges here are more difficult than people realize. I think it's causing us to have the wrong conversation. And what I mean by that is that I think a lot of the a lot of what was done here was, uh, you know, definitely stuff that could be easily charged for our criminal law system. And it is being there's hundreds of people being charged. The ringleader should have there should be a criminal investigation. But I will say that proving crime, proving that Trump and some of his folks at the very top were engaged in the crimes that were that were taking place at the Capitol is a little bit more challenging than I think people on Twitter, uh, people online uh, and folks who are watching cable news uh, tend to realize. Well, yes, and I appreciate that. And I know that you've written about it, uh, the uh, piece that you did for uh, Politico. I, I wonder what the reaction has been when you tell people that, you know, the, the bar is much higher than we would imagine and or understand. Uh, it doesn't help us <laughs> to, as as the, the I, I believe, the side that tries to uh, consume facts and data and understand, you know, the technicalities of things, this is just, this is still like, but, but <laughs> it seems like he should be held accountable. Even if it's just, doesn't he take an oath when he is, when the president is sworn in to uphold the constitution and wouldn't our elections that are a, a fair and have uh, been carried out uh, systematically and in, in, in a way that was determined to be legitimate. And yet he wants to violate that. So even the, I, I, we can't prosecute someone for violating their oath as president of the United States. And why do we even bother with that either? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think there's no question. I don't think there can be a serious question that he violated his oath of office, <laughs> right? I, there's no question that he didn't make make sure that the, take care that the laws be faithfully executed. He did not protect and defend the constitution of the United yeah. States. Uh, so there's no question about that, but that's not a crime. There's no crime in the criminal code that says, Breaking oath of office will be punishable by five years imprisonment. And for one thing, of course, could you imagine how difficult that would be to define? Right. The Supreme Court always, is, 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 you know, has gone back and forth about what the Constitution means on a variety of occasions. You could imagine uh, that how that would be enforceable. Right. It, you know, you, you get a you get a, a Supreme Court that flips and suddenly uh, you thought you were defending the Constitution. Uh, by uh, by, for example, protecting reproductive rights, and then the new the new Supreme Court tells you otherwise. Uh, but <laughs> but I will just say that's just not the laws that are in the books. But I guess I got I got to say this, Patty. I think this is why I think the conversation on the criminal side of things is frustrating for me because what I want to see is real conversations about what we need to do to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Because Trump is. Yes, super evil, very much trying to overturn our democracy. Couldn't couldn't agree more with that. But he was also kind of incompetent 
All right. Let's face it. While this attack was going on, he was, you know, sitting and watching uh, in the in the White House. But, you know, he did not he was not as clever as as and as competent as he could have been at pulling this off. And I worry about the, somebody like Ron DeSantis or J.D. Vance, sort of Trump 2.0, who might be smart enough to do something that's much more uh, effective at overturning our democracy. And I don't see us talking about what laws we need to make sure this never happens again. There's some discussion of it, but in my opinion, not enough. Okay, so much there that I can't, I mean, one, the idea that uh, there would be another Republican that perhaps can pull off what was not accomplished here. I, I Yes, that is a, a considerable concern. On the other hand, I don't know that those guys rise to the level of idolatry that the Republican Party seems to have in their relationship with Trump. It's a, it is a cult. It's what, you know, his, his feeding that fire of wanting the election to be overturned and calling it, uh, you know, a, a fake election that, uh, that Biden didn't win. I mean, they're, uh, Renato, there are people that wake up every day convinced that Biden is not their president, that Trump is going to be back, that he actually is president now. I mean, like that mania, I don't know that that's sustainable without Trump. And that's at least one of my little tiny hopes that I I cling to, that that this mania goes with Trump. And I don't know if that's, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) without basis. But uh, the other thing is when we talk about how do we prevent this from happening again, for me, part of preventing it from happening again is tied into prosecuting the people who did it and and making it clear that this was a an insurrection that it was treasonous behavior and so i know that living there isn't productive but yes yeah, so also making sure that there is legislation but is there anybody that you know of that is crafting that legislation that has the cojones to stand in front of all of their colleagues in the, on the floor of the legislature and say this is what we need to do because you're only going to have democrats and is that going to get passed so what I, i'm sorry i'm throwing up my hands and going what difference does it make sorry <laughs> well i think that's right i mean look let me say a couple things first of all i i'm a i was a federal prosecutor for a long time i i do believe that, prosec- that that prosecuting people for committing crimes is and it can be a defective, an effective deterrent in a lot of circumstances, particularly when you're dealing with sophisticated uh, people who are, you know, are watch, you know, care about their reputations, are afraid of going to prison. White collar crime. I mean, people don't want to talk a lot about getting tough on white collar crime, but it, to me, that is often more deterrable uh, than a lot of the crimes that we are, quote, tough on. Uh, but I will say that the issue here is just I don't want to f- I, I, I think that people's um, expectations are out of line with reality. I, I don't want us to fail either. I do think we need a criminal investigation. I, I will say part of what we're lacking here. I mean, there are some people, by the way, who may very well uh, have criminal liability, including Trump. I'm not just saying it's not possible. I just haven't seen the evidence yet uh, that would prove it. It's not treason because our Constitution um, defines treason very narrowly since our found, uh, the founders were attacked for being treasonous uh, by the by the Brits. And so they were very careful about defining that very narrowly. But there are some bills out there. I'll just say there are some there. There are some uh, bills that, uh, you know, that have been introduced into Congress that do some of this. There's you know, Adam Schiff has this uh, protecting our democracy act, for example, that, you know, prohibits self-pardons and, you know, gets rid of uh, the statute of limitations for an offense if it's committed by a president or vice president, uh, has kind of beefs up the emoluments clause, 
Um, you know, it put it puts limits on declarations of emergencies, increases whistleblower protections, just all sorts of things that would help. But what here's what I, I would say. I agree with you, Patty, that it'll probably not get passed because, you know, uh, the Republicans aren't going to be on board and you've got to get Manchin and Cinema and others to support it. But what I would like to see is the energy that people have being angry at Merrick Garland instead being directed at pushing the people that we all got elected to get something like this done or more. I mean, frankly, why do we have enhanced criminal laws? If you want the criminal laws to do what you're what you what you think they should do, why not push to get the criminal laws changed to make it crystal clear that if you try to to if you try to overturn the results of the election, that itself can be a crime and very, very clearly define what that is. But why aren't we pushing for that? Why are we agitating about that instead of getting mad at Merrick Garland? Well, fortunately, I think we're going to talk to somebody we can ask that very question to and ask what he's doing about it. (laughs) Well, that's right. And, you know, it's a hard thing. I don't want to put him on the spot either. Now we are. But I do. I will just say that I will say that, um, you know, uh, one thing that is difficult, I think, for all these members of Congress is that um, you know, they, they they recognize, even though the House is controlled by Democrats, the Senate is obviously the control is on a razor's edge there. Fifty fifty Senate. One vote can basically sink everything over there. So things are limited. But I will say another part of it is the, the Biden administration is very much focused on, you know, infrastructure or whatever. Right. Uh, build back better. Other other priorities. And so ultimately, it comes to all of us to refocus things here now that we approach the anniversary of January 6th. So let me let me bring us to our guest uh, and bring him in. Actually, we have a very special guest uh, that's coming in, a, a member of Congress. But before I do, I want to thank BetterHelp for supporting On Topic. Today's podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp, bringing you professional online counseling whenever you need it most. Advice from friends and family can be very helpful, but what about when that's not enough? BetterHelp will help you assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist. It's online, safe, private, and convenient. You can message your counselor anytime from anywhere and get timely and thoughtful responses. No waiting rooms, no offices. It's safe, private, comfortable, and convenient. Finding the right professional to talk to is extremely important. That's why BetterHelp makes it free and easy to change counselors if you need to. They're also more affordable than offline counseling and even offer financial aid. BetterHelp is not a crisis line self-help. It's actual professional counseling by trained professionals. And their professionals specialize in areas such as depression, anxiety, family conflicts, trauma, grief, and many others. So start living a better life today. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash on topic. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's betterhelp.com slash on topic for 10% off your first month. Thanks, BetterHelp. All right, now let's bring in our guest, Congressman Mike Quigley. Not only has he been a congressman for quite some time, uh, he was actually, you know, involved in the uh, the two impeachment inquiries that we had uh, and also involved in that investigation uh, that 
along with Adam Schiff and many other members of Congress, uh, into uh, some of the uh, activities, shall we say, uh, between uh, Russia and the and uh, the former Trump administration. And, you know, he, it, it, you know, he actually wanted to be on the podcast to share with us his thoughts about what it was like uh, to be in Congress uh, for this attack and thereafter with all of these uh, members of Congress who are Republican, who deny the truth, uh, and also talk to us about what Congress is doing about it. So let's bring in Congressman Mike Quigley. Welcome to the podcast, Congressman Quigley. Thanks for joining us. And how are you doing today? Yeah, you know, I am fine, but I was reminded that's exactly what I said uh, last January 5th, <laughs> the day before uh, the insurrection. Yeah, we are recording this at January 5th. I- I'm curious what it was like for you, you know, putting aside the attack. On, I mean, this is <laughs> putting aside the obvious reality this is an attack on our country that impacts all of us. I think it has a special impact for you because this was literally where you work. Uh, the, you, you were, you, your, your colleagues were under attack. Staff members were under attack. What, what was that like? You know, I think I'm glad you mentioned the staff because they're often forgotten. But uh, you know, they had a harrowing experience. The, you know, those in some of the capital offices, you know, had to barricade themselves and hide because this was a, a deadly assault. People died. Over 140 were injured. You know, for me, it. <clears throat> It's best to to put it in perspective, beginning the night before, I rode my bike around the Capitol complex, taking time uh, to walk for stretches. And um, it wasn't hard to identify uh, the insurrectionists, not just because of what they wore, but by what they were saying. They, they were publicly talking about lynching the vice president shooting the Speaker of the House uh, and, you know, doing as much damage as they could. I did the same thing the morning of the 6th, and the only difference was the crowds were bigger and seemingly angrier. But, you know, put yourself in my place. This was clearly within earshot of others in Capitol Police. So I was thinking, all right, they're going to have to have a handle on this. And for the 13 years almost I've been here, we always thought the safest place you could be was in the Capitol. You know, I think we imagined some secret force of extra officers, retractable fencing. Uh, we, We just didn't think about it. In fact, about a half an hour before we went into session on the electoral college vote, I looked out over the East Capitol side, which is the opposite of where most of the assault came from toward the ellipse and where the president spoke. There was a huge mob and there were only three Capitol police officers and they were wearing ball caps, no riot gear. And I text my staff, we don't have enough security. And they said, well, at least you're in the Capitol (laughs) because we we all thought and that that. that notion was, among the other things, fractured that day. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I used to work when I was a, a federal prosecutor in the federal courthouse, and we had a similar notion there, right, that that was unbreachable. I remember when one of my defendants escaped from prison, 
that's where they brought me to is sort of a safe spot. No one's going to enter that area. Right. Um, And the Capitol is 10 times, a hundred times that, I mean, that would, you would think that that's unassaultable. Yeah. Points that, that became clear. You you remember certain things you heard that people said. And uh, one of them was just before we were finally evacuated, but the glass broke and, you know, they were, that iconic photo on the front page of papers where this sort of makeshift barricade and guns drawn on the, on the rioters. I heard one of my colleagues say, so, uh, so when does the effing cavalry get here? Right. Wow. It never came. That must've been just uh, scary for folks there. Was there a, a point when you, that when you or others realized that no one was coming, there was no cavalry. So that was part of it. Uh, another point, I guess, um, I took a call because who knows why you do anything in the middle of this. So there's about an eight minute interview with Paul Lisnick and WGN. And I was live on WGN TV describing the scene. And in the middle of it, you can hear a gunshot. And uh, it's just my brain was trying to register because it came from the speaker's lobby side that did a couple of things. First, that things had escalated. And I didn't know at the time that that's when the woman who was breaching the security uh, was shot and killed. But it, that's when it was locked in. Okay, we are surrounded. Because it made no sense that the shot came from there. Because that's where the, the floor evacuated, right? The, the, the house floor evacuated. And, and we, because we had, we were waiting our turn to speak and we weren't going to speak on the first or second state of rejection. We were going to speak on the third, fourth and more. So about 20 of Democrats were up in the gallery. But at that moment with that gunshot, I was like, okay, we are surrounded. Everyone reacts differently. I, I assure people, I don't feel like I'm brave, but what I was told was, you know, if it's fight or flight and there's no flight, <laughs> you're left with one. I I honestly just remember being angry, you know, feeling trapped. So I was looking to make a weapon out of something and it was slim pickings up in the gallery. I I know it sounds absurd. Uh, um, um, uh, 60 times 62 year old Congressman. (laughs) What am I going to do? But that's, I'm just telling you the truth. That was what was going through my head. Uh, I wanted to defend myself. And I and I I can speak for this from personal experience as well. You never know when you when you really are in a spot where you're afraid for your own life or you're in a reason that you should be. You don't ever really know exactly how you're going to react in that right. circumstance. I do think it can have can can kind of have an impact on your life. It certainly has it had impact on the way I've looked at things. I'm curious for you, um, ha, ha, you know, how has that impacted your perspective on things being in that situation? You know, first, the notion that you're never fully safe. Uh, and I don't expect that, at least until the next presidential election, that there would be a full-scale assault like this. But I do think that most members have a sense that they have accepted the fact that if somebody really wants you, they can find you. We're public figures. Our addresses are public. We go to public events. And it only takes one lone wolf to, uh, to, to do something. 
So I think that's changed. It's become more pronounced as, you know, we're told that the number of threats to us has quadrupled or quintupled and what tripled or something. And, you know, it's tougher on the family because I had just calmed my, my wife down about this about a month later. And she happened to over here in our Zoom security briefing that we now can buy body armor with our budget. <laughs> uh, and, and here's another, these are all simple things. A lot of members switch from dress shoes to gym shoes so they can move, right? You want to be able to run. So I think it's also given me the perspective that um, uh, this is a very fragile democracy. And I think we should be constantly of a mind uh, toward what strengthens it and heals. I know this, some of this sounds corny, but you just, it's how you feel. When was the last time we were this polarized and this angry and this violent? Well, obviously it's civil war. But at that point, the leader of our country, you know, he, he wasn't talking about how he was going to get them, right? Accelerating this and making it worse. He was talking about a new birth of freedom at the inauguration of a cemetery. He's talking about uh, which, with malice toward none, with charity for all, quoting the scriptures in a manner to appeal to the better angels of our nature. So I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking, how do you do that? And that's sort of given me a perspective. And, and, I, and finally, uh, you know, uh, a couple days after the sixth, it was the first time I'd gotten away from everything. And I was walking uh, our little rescue dog in the national park in North uh, West Indiana. And it was so quiet. It was a contrast of all this tumult. And that was the first time it's like, uh, it was hard to calm the heart, right? You're still, you're still so intense and afraid of, full of adrenaline. And this contrast of being in this beautiful national park at sunrise and all you hear is the dog feet hitting the ground and it's like well you're never going to be at rest again that that actually is a question that i have congressman because we're learning about a lot of folks who were in the capital such as staffers and police officers who are struggling with ptsd uh in response to what you're talk, describing and, and the, you know, the risks that you are now uh, taking, I guess, and, and your family has to weather that as well. Has there been an exodus of people who can leave, you know, staffers or uh, I, I think we've heard about some police officers who simply can't return to the scene of their trauma? I've heard about it. We've, we've been briefed on it on police officers. Uh, I have definitely heard about uh, an exodus of staff on the Democratic Republican side. Uh, you know, you lest we forget, I mean, there was uh, about three weeks ago, some horrible threats on uh, Fred Upton from Michigan because he voted for the infrastructure bill. I mean, how, how messed up is that? Uh, and I know it is weighing on a lot of members' decision whether to run again. And in talking to people who are thinking about running for Congress, and talking to my colleagues who talk uh, to others in the recruitment phase, you know, a lot of people said, why do I want to do this? Uh, it scares me because, you know, when we are waiting to go back and vote, 
we had heard that the vice president said, we're going to go back and get the job done. It was a rallying cry. And um, it's why I went to the inauguration. And it's why I'm, I'm still there. I, I just can't let the evil force, right? I, I completely appreciate and, and I understand the decisions folks made. But to me, the thing that weighs the most is, and, and again, I'm not a courageous guy, but I just can't when I see, I'm looking at pictures of the, the faces of the guys with horns and fur and wool hats. I can't let them win. You know, I, I wonder how we can balance the need to move forward and do and accomplish concrete things on issues like infrastructure and build back better. All these these priorities that I know that the president and his administration have with the need to not only look back, but also to make sure that something like this never happens again. I I think obviously there's been a desire to continue doing the work of government, as you point out, that in some ways that uh, is making sure that they're not that they didn't win. Right. It's that's what they were trying to prevent. But but how 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 can we balance that with the need also to make sure that we can prevent prevent this from happening? Yeah, I'll I'll begin by quoting something I said on uh, the radio while we were waiting to go back. I said, what is it? What does it tell the rest of the world that I'm sitting here waiting for the National Guard to come before I can go back and vote on the peaceful transition of power? Uh, so it's multifold, you know. Number one, there's, you know, I hear McConnell is sort of giving an indication that maybe he's willing to amend the Electoral Act, uh, which we have to do. There's a series of reforms that allow us to commit a complete investigations. Um, which, you know, pass the House but have problems in the Senate. Um, and, and then there's the dynamic to your, to both of your points of, you know, how we move forward and try to get something done. Uh, it was, I have some solace that we did pass infrastructure. Uh, you probably heard that I was just toward the end of the year, the sponsor of the Act for ALS, a pretty dramatic game changer, for Brian Wallach and his wife, Sandra, and those fighting for ALS had the most bipartisan co-sponsors of any bill in this Congress. So, you know, I have colleagues who won't talk to the other side. And I get it. They don't want to sponsor bills with them. And I think there are some that you just don't want to work with. But we get something really important done. So maybe that reminds them that there's more that unites us than divides us. And there's value besides getting something good done. There's value in doing it together. Uh, but at the same time, there has to be accountability, right? The committee has to be able to complete its work. As a member of the Intel committee and you witnessed, both of you witnesses firsthand, the Mueller report says that the president obstructed the investigation. I saw it firsthand in those investigations. He can't be allowed to do that again. There has to be a complete telling of what took place and who was involved. I don't know if there'll ever be a, a criminal response to this, uh, but there at least has to be a complete understanding with the entire public 
about what took place and, and who is responsible. Can I, I was going to ask a quick question because obviously a lot of people want accountability, as you just mentioned. And uh, one of our listeners, Asim Khan, asks, why did it take so long to form the committee for an investigation? Yeah, it's a fair question because we couldn't do what we really wanted to do, which was an independent commission. Uh, you know that the 9-11 commission was a bright spot, right? At the end of the most horrific uh, attack on our country, on our shores, uh, an independent bipartisan commission came up with uh, an extraordinary report that what many of its recommendations were implemented. We are safer as a result. It was evidence that, you know, if there is a common threat, we can find solutions to that that help solve the problem. So I think the speaker gave as much time as she could to the Republicans to get on board with that as, as they had. But the, the amnesia we talked about before where McConnell McCarthy blamed President Trump in the days after for January 6th, they quickly forgot that and wouldn't support the commission. So we were left with the next best thing, which is uh, the, a select committee. And even there, uh, the two Republicans were put on uh, because Mr. McCarthy wouldn't cooperate um, and discuss this in a meaningful, effective way with people who uh, were thoughtful about this to put them on the, the committee. So it took a long time, and now it's catch up. And I know the committee feels, as we all do, that there's a race for time, and uh, we must get as much done as possible. Yeah, I, I do think a lot of listeners are concerned, given the midterms coming up. Obviously, the president's pa uh, party usually, ha uh, you know, has a challenge in the midterms. And so there is a bit of a time crunch there. Um, and so I think a lot of them will be glad to hear that there's a sense of urgency from the committee. I, I will say for me personally, I was disappointed we weren't able to reach an agreement regarding a nonpartisan or bipartisan commission. Um, and I have to say, you know, it's interesting for me to hear you talk about cooperation, for example, for that ALS bill. I, I Brian Wallach's a former colleague of mine, and I, uh, my heart goes out to him and his family I, I, uh, and everybody impacted by diseases like that. I, I wonder what it's like for you to work with Republicans who are either denying reality about the election or what happened in that attack, that assault on the Capitol, or, you know, know that will privately tell you that they understand what happened, but are, you know, silent publicly or saying something different publicly. There's a spectrum there. There's some folks, you know, and, and you can imagine who they are, that you just can't even talk to, you can't work with. And it's not just the fact that uh, they say these things, uh, they vote and they, uh, they act in a, such a destructive, angry way, right? You create memes that uh, portray uh, the assassination of a colleague. Um, so there's some that just you, you can't even try. And, but if you say to yourself, I'm not going to deal with anybody who voted uh, the wrong way on January 6th, and that, that was tough. That was tough to swallow. Or who voted against the commission, or who voted against the committee, uh, who voted um, 
not to honor the police. And there's not many left. So uh, it's a it's a point of discussion with my Democratic colleagues. Some have taken the, the position that they won't work with them at all. My attitude is um, if we if we don't do anything at all, we do a disservice because there are lost opportunities like like infrastructure and ALS and other things that we'd like to get done. Uh, and it wouldn't be particularly productive from a political point of view because it shows you can't get anything done. So uh, when I got sworn in almost 13 years ago, uh, of all things, Mark Kirk was one of the first people who talked to me, former senator and before that uh, member of the House. He said, well, most things that get done here get done in the middle in a form of a compromise. Compromise was really tough under Trump because he took such extreme positions. And it's tough with some of my colleagues. But, but I, you know, I've chosen to when it works, when I can, and it has some benefit to the public, uh, I'm going to take those shots. There are some that are lost causes. And I don't care to work with them anyway. Uh, you know, they, they, is it a toxic environment? I have to walk through a metal detector to get out to get on the house floor. Now, the metal detector is not for strangers coming into the people who just happen to be walking to the Capitol. This is because I serve with people who want to carry loaded Glocks onto the house floor and tried to. What's it like being with members of Congress who won't even go through the metal detector? Because I've been reading these reports about members of Congress trying to skirt the, the line and that sort of thing. Yeah, they, they, they either didn't want to or they refused or they tried to go around and some got fined because of it. How is it working with people who talk about threatening other members, those who encourage? How is it to work with members who deny that January 6th even take place, um, who don't speak out against threats against members, uh, who don't speak out against the hate and the violence that took place, that say that those that were prosecuted for January 6th are political prisoners. It's almost impossible. And again, there are some that are lost causes. I'm not going to try. I have a hard time with those who voted uh, against certifying a, a lawful election and the commission and so forth. But, you know, we're here to get something done. I uh, hear you on that. Now, you know, we talked a little bit a moment ago about the committee. One thing that has a lot of listeners, I think, w- concerned or wondering is sort of, you know, w- what, w- you know, what are the limitations on what the committee can do versus, let's say, the Justice Department? I know, there have been questions about why they're not, you know, from some of our listeners, I think about why they're not using the tools that are traditionally used by law enforcement. Patty, is there, are there some questions along those lines? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we are all obviously trying to understand the procedure from the outside. So uh, one of our listeners, John Mitchell asks uh, about subpoenas. He says, Congress is using subpoenas to get information. Are subpoenas sufficient to get phone metadata? How were the actual text, text messages obtained and why are subpoenas being used instead of warrants? I, I think the overall answer is that uh, the committee recognizes that it doesn't operate in a vacuum. I would say what, you know, my experience uh, when we were doing this during the impeachment investigation, again, I served on the committee that did that work, is 
we were trying to show the American public that we were being as reasonable as possible and to not be heavy handed, right? We were, we were messaging <laughs> our reasonable aspects. And I think the first wave of all this, and a lot of, you know, a lot of these subpoenas have been responded to. There have been voluntary, the reason you're getting all these information is because there has been cooperation. So I think it makes sense for the committee to get as much information as possible. And they're getting a lot. They're about to release, what, 30,000 pages so far uh, of this information beyond what they've already read. I suspect you're going to be seeing a lot of public hearings uh, very, very soon now that the new year has begun, like you did when you saw the Capitol Police officers testify as to what took place. So those are all fair questions. I think that the stronger measures you take are the ones you take as a last resort. And incumbent upon all this is the the work of, of how this is addressed by the courts. And so far, so far, not so bad. Uh, what I hear more is those that are concerned, including from some of my colleagues, that the Justice Department hasn't been more emphatic, that they have accepted pleas that they see as, as minimal or weak, um, and they haven't gone after, and I'm quoting the ringleaders of this. You know, to this, I say, you know, some degree of patience, there's still a couple hundred probably people who haven't yet been identified, even though we have photos of them committing crimes there. So this isn't going to be easy. It's a team effort um, between FBI, justice, and other law enforcement with cooperation. And the committee has to operate in the recognition that they're being judged by uh, how they're doing this, uh, not just what they're doing. Well, you know, I, it's a very thoughtful answer. I was no, no problem throwing that one to you because uh, you actually were a, a criminal defense attorney before you became right. a member of Congress. So you, I think you know better than, than uh, most folks uh, who, are, who are lawmakers, uh, the difference between the two authorities. I, I, I'm curious from your perspective, what, you know, you're somebody who is in a unique perspective is not only you're a member, you're as a member of Congress, you're in some, some ways also a victim of this crime. OK, more than all of us are as, as citizens. Would you be disappointed if there's no criminal investigation of the sort of wrongdoing of the organizers, not just the people who entered the Capitol, but people who organized or aided the effort? Yeah, I would be. It's it's a tougher pill. to. I would accept this. If I thought that everything came out. I would be disappointed. But if I thought that the American public knew everything for the same reason, when, uh, when we all had this discussion, when I was on Intel's investigation, you know, I was asked, you know, why are you doing this? Right? You're racing to a stop sign with the Senate vote. And I argued, uh, I don't think I've never thought of the Senate as the constitution said, as the jury in this matter, I think it's the American people. So to the extent everything comes out with full and complete understanding, that would be a major victory. Do I want everyone held accountable? Sure. And the fact that it's it's not just this that the president has escaped accountability. Uh, it is the crimes of what he did in relationship to Ukraine, particularly now as they face the, the wolf at the door. Uh, and. And before this president has never 
been truly held accountable. So, um, you know, what I think is fair and just, and what I think is possible, and what I think, you know, would at least at the bare minimum satisfy me are, are two different things. And I, and I can't, and I recognize I was in the room where it happened, but I, I can't take it personally. I mean, first, you know, I wouldn't be here without the Capitol Police uh, and the district police. I think today's the day we remind ourselves we may not have a republic without them. I think about them and justice for them before I think about that for myself. Yeah, I think that's the right way of thinking about it. Uh, Patty, do we have any more questions from our listeners? You know, I almost want to go back for a second. I, I do have one about the investigation, but I just want to ask uh, briefly about Ukraine and the mis- the way in which the uh, OMB misled. I mean, I believe it was Mark Pauletta who wrote the memo uh, about about withholding any sort of uh, assistance to the Ukraine. Is there going to be to Ukraine? Is there going to be an investigation there as well, or is that kind of <laughs> so much has happened that there's? Yeah, look, it's a fair question. I just don't know what in the end they're going to do. There's a lot of other issues. And, uh, you know, when asked about Ukraine today, it's whether Putin will cross the border tomorrow first. But uh, it's a fair point and uh, it's not something we're forgetting. OK, just want to ask while we were talking sure. about it. Uh, a listener asks whether you can comment on if the committee is considering a, a subpoena for Barr. Seems like he would have advised Trump that he lost the election and would know what Trump said in response. Uh, also seems like the AG might have informed Trump that his actions might be on shaky legal ground. If SCOTUS does not take NARA case, does uh, Barr have grounds to resist? Here's all I can say is I have a, a lot of faith in the committee. Uh, I serve with these folks uh, and, and honestly, they're they're doing a great job. Uh, and while I talk to them, particularly Adam Schiff on a regular basis, uh, what, if anything, they share with me, I'm pledged to keep to myself until things become public. But uh, in the final analysis, everything will become public. Uh, this isn't the committee that will keep some things to themselves. Wow. Well, that's interesting. I think there's a lot to look forward to with this committee, I think one of the most important things that people don't realize is that in a criminal investigation, often the evidence you obtain is secret. I think if any, if anyone remembers the Mueller investigation, you know how how carefully uh, all those secrets were kept until very late in the game. One of the advantages of so much of this proceeding through this committee is that we are learning a lot as as this committee is uh, undertaking this investigation. I, and I think having a public conversation about this is really important for me. Per, you know, personally, I think one of the most important things that can come from this is that everyone in this country knows who is responsible for this, what they said, what they were doing at the time, who aided this, who supported it, and and really also on highlighting the hypocrisy of people who are saying something, you know, totally different now, but we're saying, you know, singing a different tune on January 6th or January 7th. I, sure. I, you know, do you, do you, do you see it that way? I do look as dark as it is. Uh, there are a lot of people I serve with and on staffs that are of a good heart and good mind that are willing to put it all on the line because they know what's at stake. Um, you know, reread the book. Uh, it can't happen here. It can. And uh, we were close to it uh, a year ago. Um, tomorrow's the anniversary. We got a lot to do. 
Absolutely. What are you going to be doing on January 6th? Uh, well, I'm heading out tonight. As, as we finish this, I'm heading to the airport. Uh, tomorrow, there's a prayer. Uh, there's a vigil. Dolores Goodwin and John Meacham are leading a discussion about the historical aspects of this. Members will be giving testimonials and, and reminding the country of what took place and what's still at stake. Wow. Uh, we'll, we are, I'm actually going to be a, at a vigil in my hometown in Naperville and, um, uh, and uh, doing something similar, just trying to contemplate what this means for our democracy. I really, I'd like to encourage all of our listeners to take this time on January 6th to, to remember uh, what happened that day and what this means for our democracy and really focus our efforts, not on anger about what isn't happening, but on what we can do to make sure that we are advocating for the right sort of reforms to our government, but also uh, doing what we can for this upcoming election. And, and I'm, and uh, I think, uh, Congressman, that this this upcoming election is going to be extremely consequential. It's going to really determine whether President Biden is able to uh, help uh, heal our country, move things forward and continue the progress that he has. And really, whether or not this committee can continue its investigation, uh, you know, past this uh, this year. Yeah. And final thought. And I do have to run to the airport. Uh, I I've played hockey since I was seven years old. Uh, rarely went into a game saying, oh, we're going to get killed. We're going to lose and uh, had a good outcome. Uh, people cannot look at this uh, election with the defeatist mentality, which I hear too often. Uh, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot of work to do. We're ready to roll. And we hope uh, people of silver, similar mindset are as well. Well, thank you, Congressman Quigley. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing your perspective Uh, It was very illuminating to me, and I think it's going to be appreciated by all our listeners. Thanks again. Well, thank you both for having me, and uh, Happy New Year to everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 